Welcome to A Couch Divided, where we draw the line between secular psychology and a biblical worldview with Dr. Robin Hall and Nick Thomas. All right, Nick, sit back and relax. And if you can't, we need to talk about that. Okay, guys, prepare to be couched. Prepare to be couched. Now, we made a reference to Arnold Schwarzenegger voice, and now I can't get that uh, part. I need to practice that. Oh, um, you're in, like, the, ac- the actual accent? Yeah, the actual accent. <laughs> <laughs> On that. Um, we got some guests uh, with us uh, today, uh, James and Hillary. Um uh, they both work in the field, um, in uh, the medical field and the uh, kind of a behavioral health field as well. We're going to talk about the effects of COVID on people and the effects of COVID on them and their uh, experiences with it. Uh, in the past few episodes, we've gone over a timeline um, that showed you the effects of COVID on the, on the, on the psyche and what was going on uh, in the months of 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 the uh, the covid uh, disease and pandemic. virus yeah pandemic can we call it a disease it is i mean it is a disease right we can call it a disease it's a disease <laughs> see that was hillary and she, you know she's got some medical experience if she calls it a disease i believe her um okay yeah so um we thought it would be really interesting to bring you guys um first-hand experience from some first responders who've been working in the trenches during the pandemic um, and kind of get a feel for like how, you know, psych like they're professionally, there's been psychological impact since the pandemic started. And then how, you know, working with COVID p- patients and around COVID positive families, that kind of thing has impacted them psychologically. So um, we're going to go ahead and have, Hillary, introduce herself first. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Favorite color, perfect date, that kind of thing. Um, my name is Hillary. I'm a registered nurse in the state of Arizona. I've been a nurse for about four and a half years. Um, I work in a critical care ICU situation that got turned into a COVID ICU. Um, been through two surges now um, with the patients. Um, favorite colors, yellow, and the perfect date would be March 25th because it's not too hot and it's not too cold. <laughs> a miscongeniality so reference. I, love I wanted to make mention we do have a third guest here, uh, little baby Tobias. So you'll hear the cute sounds of a baby in the background because we love children here at a couch divided. <laughs> um, yes, we love children, and this this ch- ch- child, children, child is. Um, our newborn son so he's in the recording room with us so you know bear with our little cooing and just to just to let you know it's not mine and robin's <laughs> newborn son <laughs> sorry i, I was, was like, gonna say something <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it is sir james the beard um his and robin's uh, newborn son uh, that's why we're here. In fact, I love the baby cooing sounds, and I'm not going to edit those out was, uh, one bit. And uh, James. Well, I, I feel like your nickname, Nick, like Nick the Image Bearer, yeah. like Thomas, it kind of, yeah. it all ties together. It all ties together. We love babies. We love babies here at A Couch Divided. Okay, it is my kid. I'm not going to, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so what did you call him, Sir James the Beard? Sir James the Beard, yeah, I just... Uh, <laughs> I just kind of invented that right now, so I'm sorry about that. Go ahead and see your nickname from now on. <laughs> I, can, I can live with that. Yes, yeah, yeah. I feel like I should introduce myself now that it's known that Robin and I are married, and she's the one who has the doctorate. I feel like I should be Mr. Doctor Hall. 
Mr. Dr. Halls. Yeah. That's Dr. very progressive. <laughs> I know. How left-minded. I'm surprised you didn't hyphenate your name at all. You just took mm-hmm. on the name of Hall. You're very progressive. I know. So maybe I shouldn't be in the process of changing my name to Baird, but we should be in the process of hyphenating Baird to Baird Hall. Or... No, I think you should do like a boggle thing, put all the letters together, <laughs> shake it up, and then go oh, from there. Oh, right. An alternative last name, right? Mm-hmm. Alternative. Oh, Sophie Zankman. Yeah. Well, we are nothing if not progressive in this in this household. <laughs> There's no orthodoxy or conservatism in our bone. Right. You hear that? You little no. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, babe. Well, so I mean, as I'm... as no. Oh. No, I was gonna say we weren't gonna like initially introduce us as being married, but now that that cat's out of the bag. Um, this was literally a discussion we had beforehand that we were not going to bring up the marriage, and somehow ended up being. The first thing that we talked about. God so had, my name God is James. God had other plans. <laughs> yeah, God had other plans. So my name is James. I'm in the behavioral health field. I've been in the field for since 2006. I have no formal education in the field. I was a Christian studies major in college. Just kind of fell into it. And I, for the last several years, I was full-time doing mobile crisis in the community. Uh, so someone would call like the Maricopa Crisis Line. And if they felt it required in-person attention, then a team such as myself would be dispatched and I'm going to get the baby. <laughs> Speaking of mobile crisis team, you got to be dispatched, He's been deployed. He's been dispatched to the child. Baby. See, this is what I like even about Christian parents too, as well. You know, we can be in the middle of something and the baby's more important uh, than everything. hundred percent. And so obviously we were joking about progressivism. We're about as orthodox as you get <laughs> um, on that. Um, babies in service, babies on the lap, you know, podcasts, it's all. We're psychologists and complementarians. How do you do that in the <laughs> in the Christian world or in the uh, in the secular world nowadays? You don't. Yeah, you don't. You right. don't do it. If it's not feminist theory, mm-hmm. it's not nothing. Mm-hmm. So. Actually, I was talking to a friend of mine just recently, and he went to a Bible college back east, and he he said that while he was attending, he was maybe one of five complementarians like in the entire school yeah yeah and everybody else was you know egalitarian (laughs) yeah well i mean no not like not in the entire world but in like liberal institutions certainly you know and i think i mean this is a discussion for like a totally different podcast but a lot of our like you know major institutions even like christian institutions are heading the liberal way so anyway uh, uh both of you are uh Profe- professing believers. Yes. Like, Correct. Right. I was gonna Brothers that. and sisters in Christ. Yeah, Brothers I, was like, I don't know Christ. where you're going with this. I'm like human beings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, not animals. We, both of you we are, are also both human beings. Yes. <laughs> I identify yes. <laughs> as a Christian. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone here, right? And hopefully Tobias one day. And just, just for the record, I currently am full-time at doing in an inpatient psychiatric hospital. Yes, and it shows. as staff in an inpatient (laughs) psychiatric hospital so yeah so it's so um it we thought that both of their experience would be so interesting to first hear and then beneficial in terms of um i mean you guys have kind of had to be on your feet about like coping mechanisms and be really adaptive at how you handle um like first responding since all this happened so I don't know which one of you is more interested in talking first, but um, we've got a few questions that we figured we'd have both of you guys at answer, um, and then 
you know, kind of let the discussion. Yeah, just kind of let it roll free. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So our first question is, what has your professional experience been working in critical care during the pandemic? So, you know, what's some of the stuff that you've seen, witnessed, and then of course we're looking at like a psychological, the psychological component. So, um, what five hundred hours? Yeah. What have what what have you watched happen? What's changed in your professional landscape since this started? Uh, well, since James is tending to little uh, T bear, I'm um, <laughs> that's his thug name, by the way. Yeah. Um, I I've uh, worked in critical care now in the ICU for two years, two and a half years now. Uh, started, um, I think I probably took care of actually one of the first confirmed uh, COVID cases oh. in the ICU and. Uh, it was so little was known about how the virus progresses, what it does, how it attacks the body. Um, how do we isolate this person? How do we keep ourselves safe? What kind of personal protective equipment um, going forward? It's going to be called PPE for those of you following at home. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, at first we were just wearing masks and then they're like, no, you need to wear the N95 and you have to change it every single time. And it's like, well, I'm in and out of that room a lot, so we're going to run out of PPE. So you mean, like, change it in in and out, like, whenever you would leave the room and then come back in? Yes. New new N95 mask. Right. Okay. So those say on the box, single use only, but um, it quickly became apparent, oh, we're going to run out. We're going to run out real fast to these N95s. And you have to be fitted for them. It's not just like... It's not just like putting on the surgical mask that you see people walking around with. This is, there's a process to get that thing fitted to your face. Um, some uh, people have to shave their beard, looking at James. Yeah. Um, so It was a sad day in our household. It was a sad day. Um, so we quickly learned we're going to run out of this. So what do we do to combat that? So there was a bunch of tests done, and we're going to sterilize them. You can use them for five times now. Ugh. I'm like, okay, how are you sterilizing them? And the process is involved, but you use it for five times. Okay, great. Um, so it just went from, it went from what do we know to just, you know, guys, you've got to protect yourselves no matter what. Few people in the room as possible. Um, family, these patients are no longer going to see your face. They're just going to be able to see your eyes. And um, I don't know if you've ever tried to have a conversation through one of those masks, but you're very muffled and it's very hard to understand. So you spend the majority of your time yelling at the patient. Um, And it makes it difficult to do assessments, especially when they're intubated, sedated, and you need to check neurostatus. You know, you're yelling at them. And instead of just, hey, John, squeeze my hand, squeeze my, wiggle your toes, you're screaming at them right now. So um, just for people that don't know what that is, can you explain what intubation is? Intubation is uh, when your lungs are failing and we have uh, to put a tube that um, is essentially like breathing through a straw all the way down into your lungs and then you are attached to a machine that is taking over the work of breathing for you. Um, You have parameters, so much oxygen is being given, you can give more oxygen, you have things that are helping keep your lungs open, um, called PEEP, uh, positive positive pressure. Um, It has to do with that, it's keeping your lungs open in between each breath. Our bodies naturally regulate that on its own, but when your lungs are failing, we got to take over. So, is that done through? Is that chemically done, or is no? It... It's it's uh, through pressure, literally okay. like um, air pressure. You know, the best way to do it, you can't really explain it with like a, with like oxygen visually, um, but you're going through a tube or a hose. So if you think about like a garden hose, you have it turned on full blast, you kink it, 
And then if you let it go, you see all this pressure. Well, that's right. essentially kind of what's happening to your lungs when we're breathing for you. You've got all this pressure going through the hose to keep your lungs working, exchanging, you know, all of that. So um, it's not a pleasant experience. You are typically sedated with multiple medications to either make you completely forget what's going on. Um, so you don't remember it. They have side effects of amnesia, thank God. Um, and then if it gets so bad that we you're not compliant with the sedation medications and the pain medications, we will just fully take over. We will fully paralyze your body. So that you can't move. So you can't move. If something goes wrong, you can literally do nothing because it's a, it's a, it's paralyzing. You can't even wiggle your finger. Okay. How terrifying so that experience the, must be like, just psychologically speaking. Yeah. If you have any like awareness at the time, if you are claustrophobic, it is not going to be a good time for you. You, right? you did mention neurostatus. Mm -hmm. Is there any, uh, you know, dire neurostatus? What was the typical neurostatus of a COVID patient, especially in the beginning? In the beginning, they're alert, they're oriented. Um, they're very anxious, obviously, because obviously. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Okay. Um, so that's an issue. If you're not able to breathe, everything else kind of takes a second. Um, uh, uh, it takes a back seat. So, when you can't breathe, that's why we have to paralyze you. That's why we have to put these things down your throat. That's why when you are put, um, you're intubated, yes, we're sedating you, but we're also restraining you a lot of the time. So you've got things around your wrist so that you can't scratch your face. You can't do anything. And if you, um, it's very, even when, you know, and I'm sure James can talk to this, even when you're not having an intubated, sedated patient, sometimes those patients still have to be restrained for their <laughs> safety and yours. It's very um, frightening. Mm -hmm. right. And then if you're a family member, see, why is my husband sedated? Well, because he tried to do this, this, and this. And for his safety, mm -hmm. we had to you know, tie his hands down. Wow. And so that, was, that would be hard on the significant other. Hard <laughs> on the significant now. other when they were still allowed to be seen right. by that person. Those, yeah, those so, images. Yeah. And to speak to that, do you, like, so things I remember, and Nick and I talked about this in the other episodes, um, that things really started to ramp up at least publicly in March yes. of last year. Yes. Do you remember when it was that they took uh, visitation privileges out? Um, well, we started out with just a couple patients who were COVID positive, and those family members were having to write down their names as to, hey, I visited so and so, and they were allowed in the rooms at that point, okay. um, as long as they had, you know, a mask on. And then um, that slowly got taken away to, no, now you can just look at your loved one through the glass. Um, and then it got, I want to say like April or May, they were like no visitation, none whatsoever. Um, and now it's a matter of phone calls. Um, and you know, if your family member in the hospital has like an iPhone or some way to do video messaging, they can communicate that way. Um, they've made adjustments to that now where we now have iPads that are hospital owned and we can reel them into the room so that loved ones can see okay. and have that kind of experience yeah. now. But you know, a year ago we weren't doing that. Right. Now, uh, this early on we started, uh, if you remember all the, um, news coverage on ventilators mm -hmm. and everything like that kind of goes to the innovation, mm -hmm. uh, that you were talking about here. Um, we wanted to get uh, to get met, uh, you know, ventilators and mm -hmm. we got a bunch of them. And yeah. then we heard the news that these ventilators might be causing problems. Was that true? Or, I mean, obviously there was some truth to it, but did you see a dynamic uh, decrease in health because of ventilators? Um, 
I'm going to be 100% honest with you guys because I know that's what you're looking for. Most of the time when a patient's coming to us to get ventilated, they're not going to ever come off of it. Okay. Okay. So, um, it's... When you say coming to us, you mean coming to the ICU? Yeah. When they come... Because, I mean, I'm in the ICU, so I'm seeing the worst of the worst of the worst. Like, everything has been exhausted and now you have to be here for either medication reasons or because you have to go to that next level of care of, hey, we're going to intubate you. Um, so... The the intubation process itself is is terrifying um, for the patient. Um, it's still a, I've done it so many times now, but it's still unnerving for me when wow. I have to push those yeah. meds. Mm-hmm. Um, and because uh, you're not guaranteed that you're going to be able to get the tube down the you know quickly, and and these people already have terrible oxygenation saturations. Like right, right. should keep be you know you and I walking around with nothing. We should be ninety three or better, ninety three mm-hmm. to one hundred. Right. Um, and these people are hanging out at like 86%. Mm-hmm. And that's an issue. If I remember my DME days, Medicare wouldn't even pay for oxygen if it was below or if it was above 88. Yeah, so I mean, we always certain, thought that was weird. There, yeah, yeah there's cer- well, no, because there's certain um, things like if you have COPD, there's certain parameters, and right, right. Um, you should just be able to like regulate that on your own, taking deeper breaths. But uh, you know, you're seeing these people with the ventilator on, they have a hundred percent oxygen coming at them through this tube and they're still satting at like 85, 86. Right. So, well, what do we do to make that better? Okay. Well, we're going to get this awesome bed. It's called a rotoprone bed. I'm going to put these people on a rotoprone bed. And I know I've talked to Robin about it and I, mm-hmm. it's it, the best way to describe it is like a rotisserie, like you would put meat on because it flips them upside down. It rocks them from back and forth, back mm-hmm. and forth. And those patients should have one nurse, one patient and for a while we were able to accommodate that um and then we realized that these beds are super expensive we can just flip these people to their stomachs making them prone that's what that means if you lay on your back you're supine if you lay on your front you're prone and it helps oxygenation better well we were finding okay well if we manually prone them after intubation or even before intubation that they were doing better it was easier work of breathing um not so much um, like you're able to expand the lungs better with the proning. So that was great. And I'm, you know, now we're all in the ICU. We're like professional proners now. Mm-hmm. Um, and even on the floors, like, nope, you need to lay on your stomach. Like we're telling patients lay on your stomach. It will help. Well, some people can't lay on their stomach for, you know, body, whatever reason, body mass index. I, it's uncomfortable for me. Um, and people, I think, forget that, you know, this is literally your life at risk here. You laying right. on your stomach versus laying on your back, that could literally save your life. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're finding that. So, but I personally have found that we're not seeing a lot of these people come off of the ventilator um, to be discharged to the floor and then to home. Right. Okay. Um, uh, by the time they're getting to me nine times out of ten, it's, you know... It's 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 you're walking that uphill battle in quicksand trying to save this person's life and it's so awful so okay um and I want to ask you more about that too compared to like pre-covid in an ICU if you get 10 patients how many of those 10 patients have the like chance or opportunity or statistical likelihood of going home Uh, it's a high percentage I mean probably like 80 to 90 percent of those those 10 patients you're always going to have that one who just like, no matter what we do, they're not coming. You're not going to, you're not going to be able to save their life. Mm -hmm. And, but now if this is just such a, I mean, you know, for people to say, COVID's not real. It's like, it's real. Yeah. I mean, this, as soon as anybody says that, I think of the people, the like Holocaust naysayers, like that's the group I put them in. Exactly. Like flat earthers, Holocaust naysayers, you know, like this is a real, this is a real thing. 
it's really happening. It's robbing people of time with their loved ones. It's robbing people of, uh, of their freedoms. It's just, it's terrible. It's yeah, so awful. we got we got kind of like two categories of people that are reacting. We got COVID deniers, mm-hmm. and then we got COVID fearers. Right. <laughs> and, and both end up breaking down in the mind. I don't want to go outside because there's COVID. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm going to go outside because there's no COVID. Mm-hmm. Right, know, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right, it's all a conspiracy. Right, yeah. so, you know, the, <laughs> the issue is, is that you're having all of these... Um, these patients who are deteriorating quickly where, you know, well, why can't you do this? Why can't you do that? And it's like, it's not proven like that. I can't even say the word, the hydroxy, whatever. Chloroquine. Thank you very much. I can't even say it. Um, That particular medication, like, why are you giving that? Are you giving that? It's like, uh, yo, by the time they get to me, we're not talking about that anymore. That's like throwing, you know, Tylenol at a migraine sufferer. Like, like, that's not going to help. So they, quickly started doing things like convalescent plasma. So they were taking uh, the plasma from patients who have had COVID and survived COVID, and they're giving that to help boost the person's antibodies to hope right. your body will actually be able to fight it. Mm-hmm. Um, we're giving you know vitamins like zinc and vitamin C and vitamin D. They're giving antivirals, um, even antibiotics to help with secondary infections. Um, but as far as like, it's, it's by the time they get to me in the ICU, I'm not personally seeing a whole lot of success. Okay. Have, have you seen, um, uh, in these uh, patients that come to see you, obviously you're in the ICU, so it's going to be like end stage mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, are they usually a uh, particular, you know, elderly comorbidities or never yeah. had a, a you're problem with hundred percent. You're going to have the outliers, the weird ones, like the 24 year old healthy person who, yeah. Yeah. you know, had no prior medical history. Like we had one and he yeah. didn't do well. And yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he passed. Um, well, that's an anomaly that, mm-hmm. that's, but most of these patients, um, and it's not getting talked about in the media because it's not as scary to say, you know, these people who are really getting sick that I'm seeing, they are all, um, usually a little bit older, mm-hmm. 50s, 60s. They are morbidly obese, obese to morbidly obese. They have mm-hmm. type 2 diabetes that's nine times out of 10, either out of control or undiagnosed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have hypertension, high cholesterol. Mm-hmm. You know, like, what did you eat for dinner? Oh, well, I went and I had, you know, McDonald's. You know, well, what is, oh, I eat pretty healthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you had a vegetable lately? Wow. Have I you think, had a, like, you know. Can't... We need a shirt, like, hashtag, mm, yeah. that, just that noise. Yeah. But, you know, so, you know, food is medicine, 100%. Like, yeah. you got to take care of, like, our bodies are designed in a beautiful, amazing, miraculous way. Divine way, right? Like, you know, 100%. And, you know, he designed us in such a way and gave us the food things that we need to keep ourselves healthy and you know as we've gotten farther and farther and farther away from how god intended us to live and treat our bodies there are going to be consequences and none of us want to deal with that so that's what we're dealing with is we're dealing with and yeah they're more men than women Mm -hmm. um and then the sad thing is and this is so heartbreaking to me is you've got certain specific ethnic groups that this is just hitting so hard so you know if you are a uh, someone who's Hispanic, mm-hmm. um, you know, I can't even, I can't even tell you the, the sadness in that because a lot of times there's a language barrier there right. too. So right. I don't speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm having to talk to these people over a translator phone. Oh, that's super personal. Right. Uh, and then, um, unfortunately, you know, like our native tribes here, you know, mm-hmm. like those patients already have 
massive medical issues that, um, you know, we've done a serious disservice to that particular population of the earth, but um, they're passing away like whole families are being just obliterated Decimated. by this virus. Yeah. Well, virus. and I know you and I have talked personally after mm-hmm. some like rough days or weeks in the ICU yep. and it, you've just watched people lose family member after family member. Yeah, there one one family member in particular, he um he was uh had all of those comorbidities, Native American, which didn't help his cause. Um and uh he his mother and his brother were hospitalized. His father was hospitalized. And then he was hospitalized. And they're all at different hospitals. And the day that he got intubated, his brother passed away from COVID complications um, in the same hospital that his mother was at. And she heard the code for his brother. Oh, wow. She survived. Um, and then his father was in a different hospital. And he was on that rotaprone bed. And he survived. But this guy, no matter what we did, he, he ended up passing. And mm-hmm. talking to his sister, um, her three children got it and were in the process of being hospitalized. She got it. And she was calling from her hospital bed to check on her brother. Mm-hmm. You know, so, um, and it was a matter of, like, you know, what do we do to... to let these people know, like, we're doing everything we can for your loved one, but at the same time, I need you to be realistic about what his, what's, what's your end goal here? Right. And people don't want to talk about that anymore. No. I mean, and we avoid talking about death in our culture, like, so, so greatly. It's a reality, you know, it's an inevitable thing that comes upon us. And, uh, you know, I think that just shows, you know, a lot of people say that I don't fear death. I don't fear death. I don't fear death. But in actuality, we do. You can tell by the way we avoid. Right, <laughs> right. We or the way we prolong it. things, the way right. that just, you know, like, you know, you have, there's a couple really good articles that um, I've I've shared on, like, my Facebook page, um, you know, my private Facebook page um, about, like, end of life and how important it is to have that discussion. That's a whole separate topic for yeah, you guys. It really but, is, it is. Yeah. Um, but in particular, there are just, like, certain things, like, uh, I, you know, in the back of my mind with some levity refer to as, you know, like, are we doing everything? Okay, so they're going to get the COVID special, which means if they make it mm-hmm. on the vent, okay, where they're going to trick them, peg them, and they're going to go to a long-term acute care facility. And they're basically, you know, they're going to be dependent on a ventilator. They're going to be dependent on someone to feed them through a tube um, in their stomach. And they're going to be dependent on people turning them, cleaning them. And, like, their yeah. quality of life, like that's their quality of life now. And is right. that really something that you right. want to get behind? Right. And I can already see some of the madness uh, here as well. Um, there is a divide politically in our nation right now from left to right, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and we hyperize these truths, right? You mentioned ethnic groups. It's hidden ethnic groups, and mm-hmm. that is a reality, mm-hmm. right? 100%. Already, Already some people... Because obviously we're Orthodox Christians. We don't believe in critical race theory. We're not woke, uh, the social justice movement. But the reality of it hitting ethnical groups is 100% uh, real. And already some people are going, (laughs) you know, and getting hyper, you know, hyperactive because they've heard the ethnic groups like that. And this is what the politicizing uh, of COVID and the realities of what uh, 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 people are dealing with can do to the psyche of the mind. And there's even, you know, like um, the one Hispanic patient who comes to mind um, just um, 
broke my heart when he ended up passing. Like they messaged me at home to say, Hey, he, he passed. And I don't remember if I called you Robin right away, like mm-hmm. afterwards, but I was in absolute tears because he was such a kind and loving man. But like what he did for a living, um, was caring, you're caring mm-hmm. for, like, I always look at my patients as, you know, I don't care what you do for a living. I don't care what your race is. I don't care, you know, if you're male or you're female because there's just the two. Um, mm-hmm. uh, mm. Hashtag boom. <laughs> just the two. Hashtag triggered. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> hashtag just the two. Yeah. Um, Wait, is that, is that controversial? Yeah. <laughs> but I always look at them as like, you know, you know, you know, John Doe in this bed, he is important to somebody just as important as my mother is to me. My sisters are to me. Mm. Um, my friendships are to me. Right. And it doesn't matter what he does. It doesn't matter what his ethnical background or, you know, what it is. So, well, no. And there's just so much that, you know, like sometimes, you know, did we try harder for one patient because, um, you know, of they had more resources or... Do they, uh, do they, do we not try as hard because we knew, oh, he's Hispanic and he's going to die anyway. So no matter what we do, it's, you know, it's like trying to nail jello to a wall. It's right. not going to work. Yeah. Right. Trying yeah. to nail down smoke. Well, and I think to, like what everything you're saying speaks so beautifully to like our inherent understanding and an acknowledgement of like value of human life like and that we're made in god's image right like this is an image bearer who's in the bed in front of me right when we we say that the image of god is the very soul inside of man worthy of love dignity respect (laughs) on just that principle alone this extends skin color Mm -hmm. it really does right and we can embrace skin color god made you that way embrace it uh we have cultures we have backgrounds but overall we start identifying ourselves by those things right. and forgo the image of God, then we don't, you know, we don't get the perspective that you just, Mm-mm. that we you don't just have related. a standard for value. It, right. oh, you, you, you broke and pierced my heart. As soon as you said, as soon as you said, this person is important to someone. Mm-hmm. Right. 100%. And this comes to the disposition of a medical worker is that you will treat anyone, you know, right. everyone. Right. That comes I don't in. get, I don't get that luxury of having um you know i have my own personal biases with certain things that like oh, you've lived your life this way great now i have to save your life mm-hmm. sure, you're just sure. gonna go out there and do it again and sure. come back and i spent all this work for nothing yeah. um and that's a reality mm-hmm. you know that's a reality but ultimately it's like you know okay i'm gonna do what i can to save your life right now mm-hmm. yeah and it doesn't matter that's the common you know, grace well my matter. personal feelings really bear like no weight in that like you're an image bearer so i treat you like i treat you that way i think that's such a good segue into the um question you know question of so how like i mean it's definitely impacted the profession i mean in specifically your little niche right area of medical practice um how has it impacted like what was your experience like watching the psychological impact of all of the changes that got made, like no visitors, like people have family members mm. that are dying and they can't say goodbye. Um, watching that, you know, what was the psychological impact that you observed in family members and then like among your team members at the hospital? So among family members, it's a lot of disbelief and it's a lot of denial that this is happening okay. because, you know, naturally so. Yeah. My my father went in there and he was walking, he was talking, he could talk, he could tell me story, you know. He could hear me, he could respond, and I could touch him. And now it's, you know, here's your iPad. Um, you're 
your father is, you know, the ones that decide to withdraw care are, they're heartbreaking, but they're less heartbreaking than the, you know, I fought to the very, very end. Um, we can talk about my feelings about DNR statuses and things like that later, but mm. um, your one family member comes to mind where this was still when we were not allowing visitors to come in. Um, we've lightened up a little bit now within the last week and a half, but the family members are all in their home on, on their device and either his sister or his wife was outside the room because she could not go in mm. to hold her loved one's hand while we were um, removing him from essentially life support. So um, it's just denial. It's like, no, he's still breathing. It's like, that's the machine right. breathing mm. for him. Right. And so you have to... If we removed all intervention if, right now, he would not He would not sustain go. life. Right? And so it's it's one of those things where you're... It's so sad and you can hear them screaming and crying like, Dad, wake up, wake up, wake up. You know, no, he's he's just asleep. And that is what they look like when they're mm-hmm. passing and when they finally pass. Um, if they're allowed to go peacefully, they look like they've gone to sleep. Um, but it's one of those things where that's just, that's so heartbreaking because you know that they would choose to be there and they would choose to have that last bit of human touch without the gloved hand, Mm -hmm. um, without the face mask on, without the respirator on, the face shield, the personal protect, the PPE, the big old yellow gowns that we're wearing. And, you know, he would be able to hear words clearly as Mm -hmm. he's passing instead of it being you know muffled and unintelligible Mm -hmm. um and it's hearing that um that's the family's perspective um i think that we need to do as as medical professionals we need to do a better job at explaining this end of life process but uh you know i've i've had processes for myself like you have to just kind of turn it off after a while. You feel it, but you're not allowed to feel it in the moment. You have to, right. you take it home and you take it home to your family. In the therapy business, we call that compartmentalization. <laughs> Pro. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so, you know, as a, as a, as a person, as, as a Christian, my big concern has always been like, did this person know Christ? Um, right. And that's been very, very difficult because, you know, what I, where I work and what I could do, I could, you know, get in a lot of trouble for evangelizing to mm-hmm. my patients. Um, and, you know, like, I probably could be bolder with that, but, you know, I have bills to pay. So, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's, it's been hard for me to, at first it was difficult. Um, now it's gotten a little bit easier. There are the ones that hit harder um, just because of the circumstances or you taking care of that one patient for, you know, weeks and then they don't make it. And right. And you're like, oh, I, you know. Well, and you develop, like, even if they're not responsive, like, you develop a relationship. You develop a relationship, you develop an attachment. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember uh, growing up, my mom was a CNA. We would have dinner all the time, mm-hmm. and her beeper would go off. And this was her uh, expression. She would look at the beeper and go, oh. Oh, wow. Because she just yeah. got information News. that the patient yeah. that she'd been taking care of just yeah. died. And it, sometimes, you know, it, you could tell it was a, a, it was a bad dinner when the beeper went off like four times. Yeah. You know? um, wow, that's, yeah. That's, and that's, this was the 90s. That's why I say beeper. There was things called yeah. a beeper. Back that's a rough yeah. dinner. It's a pager and you put in numbers <laughs> yeah. to, um, yeah. Right. Um, but that's, that's been, I've had, you, you have to, you do learn to compartmentalize uh, how do, how are we coping with it as, as uh, as nurses, um, yeah, like a professional unit. Uh, morale is low. 
Yeah. Um, and that cannot be helped. It's low because, you know, we're losing staff to the COVID contracts where they're making a boatload of money. Um, or you have the nurses who are like, I literally cannot do this anymore and I'm, I'm leaving nursing. So burnout. Burnout, big yeah. time. And, uh, um, so that's been, that's been an ongoing issue. And when the last, this last surge happened, you know, we had, you know, in a typical ICU, depending on what we're doing, you typically have two patients to one nurse. And, you know, sometimes that is almost too much, you know, and you need to really make one of those patients a one-to-one -one because of how much work you're putting into that, but you don't have the staff. Well, we got to doing, you know, three-to-one patients mm -hmm. with, with treatments that due to the nature of how fast things can change, they should be one-to-one. -one. Right. Mm -hmm. Like this is literal, this is unsafe. Right. 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 Uh, it's unsafe for the patient. It's unsafe for me as the, as the staff member. Uh, taking care of this person it's just very difficult um, to do uh, that kind of a thing and so you're having to pull from other units to get you know additional help with nurses who uh, to be clear are not taking care of these patients they're helping the nurses take care of the, the critical care nurses who are taking care of these patients um, you know helping us turn the patients helping them clean the patients you know hey they've got you know can you empty that can you take their temperature you know, can you chart this? All of the little things that you need to do that, to keep it moving. Yeah, things that you know normally I could do if there I, were three of me. If 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 <laughs> I was appropriately staffed, right? And that was that's been a huge issue, right? So, and I, I like I just remember even seeing like when the the first images and stuff were coming out of New York because that was kind of like ground zero, right. when, like at least in the United States, um, of all these just like these nurses and doctors asleep on the floor in hallways because yeah. they were so overloaded and you know, you've got people working like double and triple shifts um, when really working one shift under those conditions is, more than enough. is psychologically exhausting, right. let alone like physically. And, and keep in mind you have the respirator on so right. you can't see each other's faces wow. and you can't look at each other and just, you know, read your expression like how are you doing well, you just see my eyes right okay well my eyes are not that expressive yeah um you need to see the whole face and we're not seeing the whole face and so it's taking away that connection that that, that human connection that we have and it's so damaging it's almost like being alone yeah. in a crowd exactly kind of yeah. it's damaging yeah. and then you know it's the you know you know this is for your protection okay my physical protection well, what about my mental protection right. like i you know i i i've I've gone home uh, in absolute tears sometimes, just crying down the freeway because, you know, I don't know what else. I don't know what else to do with it. Right. Yeah, right. It's got to go somewhere. Yeah. You have and to usually, discharge it. You know, it. my feelings are usually going to come out of my eyes in the shape of, in the form of tears. Right. <laughs> right. Niagara Falls kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and so, one thing that is actually encouraging here is that you're here. You're able to talk about it. We can actually see the heartbreak. If you've mentioned Christ so many times, right. and that seems to help hold you uh, through this, 100%. to know, yeah, and to know that you have a skill gifted by God to help, right. and um, that comes from natural femininity, and then more so with your with your own mind and intelligence that He's given you too, Thank as you. well. Yeah, Thank so yeah. Uh, we, we appreciate that kind of candor and that kind of openness too, as well. It's hard to talk about. Uh, it is, um, and like I can't talk about the ones that are really hard sure, still because sure. it's just like. Right. You know, I ugly cry, so you can't, you know, it would be, <laughs> yeah, well, and that doesn't translate you were, well. You were telling your stories, and I go, oh. So, uh, you know, I right. was already, I was already right. crying and it's, along And it's hard, and because these people are dying, 
they're dying alone. Right. You know. Oh, it's so heartbreaking. And if you've ever, and like, you know, I haven't, like, both my parents are still alive. All of my grandparents have passed, but they were all allowed to pass. Right. Naturally, there was no, um, there was no. It was not a surprise. Separation. Yeah. And, you know, to, to talk about, and I'm sure you'll get this with James, like, especially with dealing with, uh, you know, we're isolating, like, our nursing home staff. I took care of a patient the other night who has baseline dementia. And so he needs to see your face mm-hmm. to know how he needs to be responding. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, baseline dementia, but he hasn't seen his family in over a year. Yeah. Because they're not letting his wow. family see him. So he has dementia. And so he's now in the hospital. He can have a visitor. His daughter lives here. Mm-hmm. When she comes to visit him, is he even going to know who she is? Mm. Yeah, I got a I got a grandpa in the nursing home right now, uh, who's past the baseline. Uh, it's just full blown kind right. of thing, and uh, yeah, he doesn't remember anybody, and that's hard enough. And we have to look at him through a window, right? And there's some there's some response, you know, a reaching forward kind of right. thing like that. But I mean, but, like know. he doesn't he is he going to recognize? Yeah, is he going to recognize his his daughter's face? Oh wait, no, she's going to be wearing a mask yeah. when she goes in to oh, see my him. My goodness. So, and both the patient and the one who cares for the patient uh, suffers. Uh, And it's usually in the mind and mental. You start questioning things like that. This is where the Christian worldview comes in because you start questioning. I was just talking to somebody yesterday about suffering and the problem of evil. And we were going into a theological aspect, which is called theodicy. And we're not going to go into that today. Uh, But to know the sovereignty of God and to know his governing and, uh, and authority and the hope that it gives us in the resurrection of the dead sustains right. us in, in, into this time. Right. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you the ones that I know know Jesus mm-hmm. and have proclaimed him as their savior, their passing is so much more peaceful, so much that even the families are at a, at a more peaceful place because they, can you know, let they, go. they let go knowing that they're releasing you know, their loved one into the care of, of their loved one's creator. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's it's a lot easier. Like who better to? Yeah, he's got you. Right. You know, you're in like and and that's the thing is like no matter when I go to work, no matter what happens, I always you know I do say prayers before my shifts, and it's a matter of you know you know use me. However, right. you know I'm I am I am your I'm your hands tonight. You know I'm your hands. I'm your mind. Give me the peace um, that passes all understanding, and right. help me know that no matter what I do, this is in your hands. You've ordained this. And I don't have to understand it. I don't even have to um, to uh, fight it. Just like, okay, God, okay, so this person's deteriorating. All right, let's let's intervene until you say, right, we're you're done. And I can go to sleep at night knowing I did everything for that patient that I possibly could. Um, and you know. And good thing, like, I'm not in ultimate control of this. No, heck no. That would right. be just awful. So, um, it's, it's been, and, and it, for me personally, that has been the hardest thing is learning to accept God's sovereignty over every tiny little situation. Come on, join the club. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I think most of us, but I mean, that, that's been, that's been so eye opening <laughs> and, you know, and, and I was talking to, um, when this first happened because of what I do, I, I had to stay away from church for mm-hmm what was it like two and a half, three months or something, something like that. that. It was ridiculous. Yeah. But because I was taking care of the sick, it was appropriate for me to sure. not come to church. Right. Sure. 
Um, so, and it was hard for a really long time just seeing my son's face only. Like, I mean, he's cute and all, and he's got a great personality, but after a while, it's like, I really just want to see my sister and I want to see my church family. And, uh, can you imagine like when the flu pandemic, the Spanish flu pandemic happened, we didn't have the technology right. to even have a phone call. Mm-hmm into those places like what that so isolation we have, yeah what like. was that isolation like so we have many blessings that have been given to us like you know can you imagine someone in you know 1918 here's this device you can look at your yeah. family member and talk to them what right you right. know just no i mean the blessing like that i'm not saying that the pandemic is a blessing so please don't hear hear me wrong on that what but I'm, there are blessings within the pandemic like we, yeah we've we been to blessed to, like that uh, you're fired at yeah. least yeah right like at least at this point in time in history we do have some mechanisms by which we can, can communicate even if we're not time. in person and right and in some way yeah these are mercies or blessings to mitigate sufferings that we have right. Um, and then we take them for granted. And, hyper- and uh, so back in the day when they didn't have all these things, some of them were forced to think about the sovereignty of God. And some right. of them were forced to, to, to get into a mind where good I point. need to rely on a particular hope. So when these, when, when God reaches down from heaven to give us these kinds of mercies and blessings, well, it's just like Israel's problems, all of our problem, right? We think the prosperity is in the land. Yeah. Uh, and not the one who actually makes the, the, prosperity, the, happen. Yeah, the prosperity happen kind of thing like that. And, you know, and, and take that prosperity teachers. You don't know what you're talking about. Right. <laughs> but yeah. Mm-hmm. And, but, and so I, I we, we, these are blessings we need to, and, and take, you know, use them, use the phone, use these things. You don't have to isolate like they did back in the day anymore. Right. Thank God that you can actually do this. You forego God, you will miss the point of these blessings. Exactly. It's the sovereign government. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. that's been, that's, uh, it's, it's forced me to have a closer walk with Christ. Amen. Um, which is what suffering does. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like it's sanctification. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's happening that's exactly daily, what yeah. uh, constantly. And uh, you levitated a little bit oh, there when you, yeah. Just a little bit. Um, but that's, that's been my experience with it. It's heartbreaking. Um, the compartmentalization is there. Other nurses, what they do, like, you know, this is, again, can be a whole nother topic for you guys. Um, you know, um, Drug abuse in the workplace. Oh, yeah. Alcohol abuse in yeah, the workplace. Yeah, right, you know, right. like, we already uh, had that in the queue. Yeah, yeah but I mean, it's, we, it's we definitely have that in the like, queue. You know, I, I just had this really That's rough... on the couch waiting. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, I just had this really rough shift. What are you going to do? I'm going to go home. I'm going to have a glass of wine. Glass or bottle? Right. Okay, bottle. Okay, let's be real. And that's what's going to help me sleep. Um, right. Or, you know, uh, you know, that's that's been the main thing that I've heard from coworkers is I'm going to go, I'm going to go have a drink. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. I don't know how to relax outside of right. what I, I've experienced for the last 12 hours straight. Right. So I'm going to go get some So chemical. I'm going to self-medicate yeah. with, you know, and, you know, everything in moderation. But, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I know some of them are going home and they're probably just drinking to block until, out. Until they go and to sleep, it's right. It's just, it's in, I work nights too. So, you know, when you're having all this happen, you have, you know, okay, so you're going home and, you know, you're having your morning cocktail. Like, I know. Is that really like Jack and Coke in the yeah, shower? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I mean, one of my former supervisors, she's like, I had my shower beer. I'm like, you're what? She's like, my shower beer. And I'm like, okay. Shower it's beer. really not. It's beer. really 
shower beer. Shower beer. Oh, my shower, shower beer. beer. Yeah. Um, it's really not funny. I, I mean, shouldn't it, laugh about it. Well, no, it's but we have to laugh or mm-hmm. we're all gonna just. I mean, like, we're or yeah. I'm gonna join her with the beer. Yeah, yeah. or I'm gonna end up having the shower keg. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're gonna get into the shower, shower with her yeah. and bring more beer. <laughs> the shower. Yeah. You got room in that shower for me? Yeah. Well, with that uh, little bit of humor, uh, Hillary, thank you yeah, for you're yeah all of being that. so candid, this especially. Is, and I'll, I'll say one more thing: baseline dementia is a killer punk rock band right now. Oh, and... as a title name for a girl. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll segue. Stealing in... that. Yes. Baseline oh, I didn't realize you wanted to be in a punk rock yeah. band. Okay. Are well. you ready to rock with baseline dementia? <laughs> I think everyone wants to be in a punk rock band. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. If point, you look, you know, yeah, if you look at me. Yeah, um, I had a past. It didn't work out, but yes, I got the tattoos to prove it. Um, And that's a good segue into uh, James. What is the tattoo? The tattoos was a good segue? Uh, No, no. James is uh, James's profession. Yes, I have a lot of punk, uh, you know, anarchy stuff. And James has tattoos. And and ska, Nick. And ska tattoos. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so yeah. yeah. So um, the, uh, the same questions that we had hillary address we're gonna go ahead and ask you so i guess first like what and so you've worked as a first responder both as a like as in crisis response and then your like your full-time job right now is working um on a an inpatient psychiatric unit so um what like what did you notice like what has been your experience as a first responder kind of in both of those arenas since the pandemic started. Yeah. Psycho- psychologically speaking is of course what I mean. It's it's weird to hear myself being referred to as a first responder. Yeah. Oh, but that's what you are. That's what you are though. And yeah. so is Hillary. You guys are both first responder. Well, I just to be fair, when I think of first responder, I'm thinking of like the people I'm thinking of like our firefighters. I yeah. think of our I think of our uh paramedics, paramedics police firefighters, officers. police officers. Right. By the time honestly they get to me, I don't think of myself as a first responder. I think of myself as a healthcare provider. Uh, but I think of I think of those people as our first responders because they are truly the ones who are like, what the heck is going on here? By the time they get to me, I have a really good idea of what's going on. Right. Oh, sure. So that's how, when you say first responder, that's what I think of. But yeah, I, I am still seeing a lot of trauma, a lot of tragedy. And you are very frequently the first to respond in a traumatic incident in the context of them being in the ICU. Good point in that. Yeah. So um, categorically, yeah. But I think you're right, you know, and (laughs) like professionally, I've had a lot of experience working, I mean, specifically with first responders. And I think, you know, we do typically think of them like of the major main categories being filled by uh, firemen, police officers. But, you know, 911 operators, in my opinion, are first responders, nurses are first responders. You're James, you when you get a crisis call. You are quite literally a first responder, first on scene. A lot of the time, sometimes there are police or firemen there before you. Um, but since you've, like, specifically since the, well, since 2006, but since the pandemic started, you've been, resp- like, responding um, in a psychological capacity. That's, you know, what we wanted you to speak to, your experience there. Yeah, Absolutely. So, first of all, I think it was interesting to me. One of the things that struck me as interesting was that when this went down, really started going down March of 2020, our, the number of calls we were being dispatched on actually dropped quite a bit. 
Uh, and I don't think that was because there was a decrease in the issues that precipitate these calls. I think it was one, well, and since one, the schools weren't calling us anymore because kids weren't in school. Right. And that was a lot of our call base. Uh, case managers, offices, and psychiatrists weren't calling us because they weren't going into, uh, those, into those places anymore. And so that was part of it. And then part of it, too, was people, I believe, this is this is just my belief now, but my belief is that people were afraid of having two people come into their homes because what what are we going to bring into your home? So I think you saw a decrease uh, in, I know you saw a decrease in the amount of treatment that people were getting for these for these issues so i think that was i think that's that was a big thing and still is kind of a big thing is that is that disconnect now between the treatment and the you know the issues that are causing suicidal suicidal thoughts were bread and butter sometimes thoughts to hurt other people Mm -hmm. but even even just psychosis and those kind of things right so for for those of you guys that don't know um clinically the we use the term psychosis to refer to people who um, are having an impaired, impaired reality testing. So they're ha- they have um, some either some kind of hallucinate hallucinatory experience, auditory visual hallucinations, mm-hmm. or a delusional experience. You know, um, uh, grandiosity, believing that they're Jesus. That those are very common. Yeah, there's, there's a spectrum on uh, the intensity of psychosis. Right. So what typically, like you know, our local color when we use like, oh, you're psycho. That's not what psychosis is, right? When you're psychosis specifically refers to grossly disorganized or catatonic behavior, and then this disconnection from reality with you know external internal stimuli. Yeah. So like hallucinations, delusions. So. Um, yeah, what uh, if you want to just back up like a, a little bit and then explain like what a crisis response team does sure. for people that aren't sure. So what is it you do? Yeah, right. <laughs> what is it? What is it you do? What, oh, Hillary, Hillary, who is your daddy? <laughs> who is your daddy and what does he do? Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna have like an Arnold fan following because we've yeah, we've read like the third. I know we've referenced him so many times yeah. already. In the I was gonna say if you don't understand that reference, then look it up right now. Stop yeah. listening yeah. to the podcast. Hashtag kindergarten cop. This is the uh, the ace in the back pocket for therapy. Oh, you're you, you, you don't want to listen to you. Okay, Arnold soundboard. <laughs> when the therapist doesn't know what to say, we channel our in our, our Arnold, right? Just to be new agey for everybody. So yeah, so what like what is a crisis response team in Maricopa County, and yeah, what do they do? Sure. So there is a Maricopa County crisis line that people can call, and it's actually handled. Those calls are handled by a company called Crisis Response Network. And they handle everything for the that comes in for the crisis line for Maricopa, as well as some other places and some other numbers. So they try to, and they generally do a good job. Their goal is to work with someone over the phone who calls in, and their goal is to be able to help them over the phone and give them what they need over the phone. However, there are times where they will feel where the crisis specialist who takes that call they may feel that over the phone is just simply not sufficient for the issues going on, or there's enough concern that this person might really do something to themselves or and far fewer occasions, someone else. And so they will dispatch a team to go out in person. So my company uh, that I'd worked, I worked, I work for now part-time 
uh, and I had been for years working with them full time, we were one of two companies that would be dispatched within Maricopa to physically go out to the home. And the team was composed of a master's level uh, person and a bachelor's level person. And of course, I'm just the lowly uh, BA. Right, because it's so easy to get a bachelor's <laughs> degree. Right. Um, so uh, who calls a crisis line? What... Any Anyone can call the crisis line. It could be could be the person themselves that's experiencing whatever it is. Psycho- Usually when someone's in psychosis, they're not calling a crisis line. But could be the, the person themselves that's having suicidal thoughts or thoughts or others or whatever, or just having a bad day, whatever. Right. It could be a family member. Uh, we get a lot of a lot of calls from family members, especially f- uh, family members of people who are who are actively doing drugs, um, and are experiencing the side, side effects. effects of doing meth or, you know, fentanyl, those kind of things. It could be uh, we would get a lot of calls from police. Police would request us out a lot. Uh, fire would occasionally request us out. More often than not, it's police uh, of the two, and of course, those calls are given priority and and. You know, we're expected to respond to those calls. We have, we have, we are contractually obligated to respond to those calls um, as a priority and faster than we are to uh, someone who just calls on themselves or a family member. But then we get, we we get, we get a, a brief description of what's going on, uh, which is sometimes accurate, sometimes not, and we get an address and we go, we go to that to that place, and we and it could be in a home, could just be in a, a park, could be. Oftentimes, uh, doctor's offices would call us out a lot. Could be at their psychiatrist's office with their case manager, psychiatrist, whoever. Um, pretty much anywhere. We get called anywhere. But the point is we go in person, I guess, is the, the big thing. And then just, just to continue to answer the, the question, we it was hardly ever after, after things like really blew up with COVID-19, Hardly ever did I hear anybody mention COVID-19 as the primary issue, uh, but it was always isolation that would come up as an exacerbating factor to whatever was going on. So whatever was going on was going on regardless of the isolation, regardless of COVID-19. But then, but then you throw the, you threw the isolation on top of that mm-hmm. and it just kicked it up to 11. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And knowing uh, that there's other factors now, okay, so, you know, suicidal ideation, drug abuse is so complex, it's hard to, it's hard to define, you know, okay, what moment in my life bled into, you know, my disaster that is my life today. There are so many different factors that go into the complexities of the human heart that if we just identify one thing, we're undermining the ailment. But it is, yeah, it is also safe to say that we don't make things easier by piling on top. And um, of course, uh, COVID uh, has its consequences just naturally being here. And then our policies and how we interact with each other also, uh, like isolation that you just mentioned, uh, the lockdown, staying in the, the house. Um, will inflame those things that you already have, kind of thing like that. And yeah. we've mentioned that in the past episodes that, yeah, sometimes this can bring on new suicidal ideation. You weren't suicidal uh, before. Uh, now you are because you're either you know afraid to go out uh, or you haven't gone out or you're isolated or you've already been struggling with these in the past, mm-hmm. and this is the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, Robin, do you want to... Um, Right. Well, I mean, it's like in on that. yeah, we talk in, in our in the episodes that we've we already recorded when we were talking about like what we've seen demonstrated in the few studies that are available 
or that were at least published within the last year, like concurrent with the uh, pandemic, um, you know, is like significant increases in anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress symptoms, and then definitely addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so <clears throat> there are always exacerbating circumstances. I think very typically when in our environmental circumstances are good, things that might be underlying in our own psychology that are maladaptive mm-hmm. are quieter um, than they are when our environment is not. I mean, I, uh, isolation in itself is purely maladaptive. Right. Usually when people isolate is because, of, you know, a particular mental elements that they have maybe themselves, depression, or they're struggling with that. Right. But now we're actually forcing people to isolate. Right. And you, you mentioned exacerbation. We're either creating a new or we're exacerbating what What's was already, already there. existing, yeah. right? Yeah. So now we've seen a tremendous increase too in psychological maladaptive psychological symptoms come up with kids you know i i send you articles all the time about suicides that are occurring in like 9 10 and 11 year olds okay well there was probably some underlying stuff there going on um but now you've taken kids like entirely out of support systems with school um and this again this is like a a whole other episode or or you're having that issue of you know i'm sorry to take over james but the thinking i'm thinking of it is you know you have and you've seen these articles like okay so you're going to isolate me with my abuser right thanks so much right right Right. thanks so much so san francisco um is one of the major suicidal capitals in the world in here in arizona uh and for there's a lot of reasons uh, you know, most likely what that is. There's a lot of homeless uh, population in there. You're going to see... Uh, you mean in San Francisco? In San, okay. Yeah, in San Francisco. But, you know, we just got a report here um, that the, the the increase in child uh, suicidal um, rates are 66%. They, they have increased 66%. This doesn't mean that 66% of children in San Francisco are, are committing suicide. This means out of the population... Uh, that normally commit suicide, it's an increase of 66%. And that is from isolation and the things that, um, what James has just mentioned. I mean, we're we're kind of, we're making making hypothetical statements there without, like, more, like, you know, uh, like, research and data being available. But there are certain things that we know increase suicidality. Sure. And isolation is definitely one. So well, it, and even from, you know, from a, a medical perspective, like there are certain things that as a, as a caregiver, I'm allowed to do. And isolation is actually like one of the things where it's like, is it really appropriate? Like you can't just isolate someone for no reason. Right. You know, like I have to have a justifiable reason to throw someone in restraints. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And so, you should need because to isolation, have a Isolation is a form of restraint. And, well, and it's a punishment. What do we do to people in prison? <laughs> you ready to mention that. Yeah. Right. right. Who, we need to take them happen. out of general yeah. population. We isolate them. It's used as a punishment because, ding, 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 God created us to be social beings. So right. um, That's why people in slink tanks go psychotic after they, you know, they, make it, they had those hallucinations. I'm oh, like, my yeah. gosh. Talk about, I would never. <laughs> like, Sorry, Joe I, Rogan, you're experiencing psychosis right now. I'm like, I'm like, no. Like, there are just, like, I don't know how I'm going to die, but I know that it won't be skydiving. And it isn't going to be in a in a deprivation tank because I'm not getting in one, you know. Um, <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to go, Lord, but I guarantee you it's not going to be either of those ways. So, um, 
you know, cheers to everybody who wants to do like sensory deprivation and jump out of airplanes. But <laughs> hard, pass. So, hard pass, yeah. So uh, I'm game for either one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's like, no, I do both. And this is, why, this is why this is why we're married. You can yeah. throw me off a plane in a sleep tank. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna check all the boxes. <laughs> Bucket list done. Yeah. I would never do the sleep tank plane. Yes. No. So like. I per- personally, I thought you know, obviously we're married, so you get to you come home to me and tell me like more detailed stories. Mm-hmm. But it was really interesting. What's been interesting to me from like a crisis for res- that part of your job is that like you had commented before that you observed like in you know you get called into like retire uh, assisted living facilities, retirement centers where people need care. So they're not like coming out in and out of the facility um, in the same way that you would in like a retirement community where you buy a house and play golf, right? Yeah. So um, that like they're, these people, like their family members aren't allowed to enter the facility to visit them, which would very likely boost morale um, past the time, if nothing else. You know, the like drudgery of the same thing every day, all day long. Um, with, you know, no one to really communicate with, I can only imagine what that, you know, ultimately does psychologically. So just your experience witnessing that has been interesting. So, yeah, that's definitely seen that not, so we see it with the regular, like assisted living places. And then we also, I've also seen it a couple of times where, or several times we go out to what's called skilled nursing facilities where there's a little bit more medical interventions going on. But same thing, their families can't visit. Uh, with the with the assisted living facilities pre-COVID, they not only could family visit, but they would also have be go to the dining room and they would be with the rest of the people there and they can socialize and they can talk. And of course, after after everything went down, like that's even taken away from them. They can't even they can't even socialize among themselves anymore. Now. Right. Not, not only can they not see family, they can't socialize among themselves. They don't have they're no longer having people come in and do whatever volunteers would come in and do prior to COVID. They would have Bible studies. Well, no, you can't have anybody come and do a Bible study now or just whatever reading of, you know, a, a classic book, uh, you know, volunteers would come in and do various things or do sing along type things. Mm-hmm. And those are all taken away because we can't have people coming in uh, to these facilities. Well, unless you're suicidal now because you're isolated right. and you can't see your family and you can't socialize um, so now that we've maybe not caused or even maybe, you know, caused contributed, contri- to. contributed to that issue. Now that we've contributed to that issue and really and really turned up the notch on that. Well, we'll go ahead and allow you to have two strangers come in <laughs> and and talk to you. Masked strangers. Yeah, masked, masked strangers come in. And not to mention that it, the, the thing that always gets me, too, is if your goal is to prevent COVID from coming to the facility, which I, I can understand that. These two strangers, mass strangers that you're allowing to come in, have had significant exposure. community exposure. Right. So we have most likely had probably 90% more exposure to COVID than the, than their family members have who have been quarantining themselves. Right. And who could, like, hopefully make a decision, right, if they right. felt like they had been exposed to not visit that week or two weeks. Yeah, you mean like like free adults? Yeah, like yeah. free-thinking adults. Yeah, right. and the frustration with that is is because we're intelligent beings and know that innately in, yes. in ourselves. Yeah. So the uh, families at home going, 
probably coming to the same conclusion that you just came to <laughs> just by just A to B connections, you know, and are going, man, they've probably been exposed more to COVID just by being in that field. I'm at home and all I can do is watch the news and see the cases uh, increase and I'm the danger, you know, right. and so... A lot of the times uh, we put this on people. I was at the gym the other day, and there was, uh, and they make you wear the masks and things like that. Okay, when I'm at the gym, I'll comply because I don't, I don't want to deal with Karen on the treadmill. I really don't. <laughs> uh, it's already bad enough. I'm running. <laughs> I know it's natural. What? I know it's natural. I feel it's unnatural. But yeah. <laughs> to, uh, and you're there the whole time, <laughs> and uh, but I'll wear the mask. And there's a sign. <laughs> there's a sign on this machine. Uh, they have like safety signs all over the place. There's one uh, in general. I'm like, oh yeah, this is really great on the psyche here. And he goes, the world might view you as just one person, just one single person out of many, but we view you as the person that could ruin it for everyone. <laughs> Wait, ruin it for everyone? <laughs> yeah, because you're the one person that could have COVID and spread it. I know you're just one person out of the entire world, but wow, you can ruin it Wow, that took it like everybody. a really dark turn for I me. Know, I was I not expecting it to end I know, that I, way. I, I, that, that yeah. was, that I was, was expecting like, but you're the world. You to know, one, one person. person. Yeah. You are their yeah. world. This like, was nope. not, for, yeah. this was not <laughs> fortune cookie. This started off as icing <laughs> and ended with acid. <laughs> <laughs> so ouch so i you know i'm going into grocery stores and i'm complying with um the the mask mandate because i too do not want to deal with karen um but uh, i was at a will not be named uh store and <laughs> over their water fountain i took a picture of this that's how much it affected me i'm gonna read it verbatim it says oh no h2o this water fountain is currently off limits but we'll all be able to drink freely again soon. We hope. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the secular. So, Hashtag okay. we hope. And we'll hope, I'm not going to lie, is has an H, a little two, and an oh. O, and then P-E, and... I thought it was gonna rhyme. We I see really what you thought did it was there. gonna rhyme. I'm like, I see what you did there. Uh, right, somebody wow. very punny of you. And then James gets a call. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we we hope sounds better than J.K. This is never ending. Yeah, <laughs> it does. It does. Oh, it does. Wow. I'm not which one is like more accurate, sure. but yeah. Well, we have a big JK, right? I mean, all of this, and then they're already prophesying COVID 2021. Yes. Right. Well, I've, that. you know, been started referring to this as we're in day 360, whatever, of a hostage situation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. sometimes how this feels. Yeah, yes. it does. I think Inside that's a really man. an accurate way of describing it. Um, so, James, tell us, like, like, so your experience has been this, you know, what you described. As a crisis responder, what's your experience been like working on a locked psych unit? So it's it's kind of funny because uh, we even on the even on the COVID units. So we have units at at the hospital that are specifically where only COVID positive patients are, and on those COVID units, we do get we do get the face shield, we do get the gown that we wear. But we actually don't get an N95 mask. We just have the, you know, regular surgical mask. And we are essentially expected to use one per shift, per 12 and a half hour shift, with the exception of when we leave the unit to go to lunch, of course, we have to, to doff. We have to take off all the PPE. And then when we come back, then we can get a new mask then. But otherwise, 
you're just wearing the same mask. It's not even an N95 mask. Even on the COVID units itself. Yeah, so those don't do anything. <laughs> so we have Hillary our, going, oh Yeah, our ICU yeah. nurse over here is rolling her eyes real hard. <laughs> so I've been fitted, and when I have to take care of a patient who's a COVID patient, if I have to be in the room for any particular long period of time, say longer than five minutes, I have a full-blown respirator that I wear that covers my face like a... Um, it's like a scuba mask, and that's what I wear when I go in to take care of a COVID patient. Mm. If I'm just going in there to empty things or measure things, I'm going to be in there for like five minutes. I'm donning on my N95, making sure it's fitting great around my nose. And then I have goggles that I put on in addition to the other PPE equipment. So the fact that you're, you're like, just, here's your surgical mask, like here's a piece of gauze. You know, yeah, you should put a piece of gauze you over go. your face. Forget about the label on the box that Breathe says this freely. doesn't prevent yeah. COVID-19. Or, you know, yeah. <laughs> single use only. So double masking, single masking, no. <laughs> so, form-fitting masking with goggles why don't you just and flippers. Why don't you just lick the face? Yeah, yeah. just lick the patient's face? Yeah. And we're like, well, we just have to wash the mask. Or, you know, you just get a better one. Yeah. And, uh, Stay six feet away. Yeah. So, so, but at least, at least on the COVID unit, because everyone's COVID positive, at least they can be out of their rooms and, and, and socializing. So our intake unit, the unit that they initially go into, and by the way, just to, just so people know, no one comes to our hospital voluntarily. So everyone at our hospital has been, has gone through a, a legal process called a petition, which has been accepted. And ultimately they have come to us against their will. So they're not there voluntarily. And now when they first come to the hospital, not only are they there against their will, but now they now they have to be in their in a room by themselves uh, the entire time they're on the admit. And they have to stay on that admit unit until they either get a test they're, they're, uh, because they get a COVID test, either until they get the results of that test saying they're negative or in the, ca- in the situations where the, where the patient refuses that test, which they can, they can do. Wow. Then they have to they have to be there for the fourteen days, uh, in that room alone. So they come in against their will, and they are in a room by themselves. And so now they're in in a, a lot of our patients are experiencing those internal stimuli. So they're hearing the voices or they're seeing things. And now we're shoving them in a room by themselves where they're where they're left alone with that eternal stimuli. I want to play the music to a requiem for a dream right now because yeah. it, it really seems like that kind of thing. Well, I, it's perceived that way, kind of thing like that, and uh, really hasn't stopped the spread in your field. Uh, Hillary, in your field, we can see you actually doing, you know, you know, mitigating uh, uh, the spread, uh, you know, amongst the staffers with, the, with your um, precautions. Right, and we have dedicated COVID units as well, but those patients obviously for – oxygenation reasons are not mm-hmm. up walking freely amongst the halls but still like i've gone up there to get those patients from the unit and those mm-hmm. doors are closed and they are isolated yeah, and, yeah. which makes know, more sense yeah it's you know and they have monitors outside the rooms to show their oxygenation levels which is really what the big issue right now with covid is but like they're at least they're able to socialize with other positive covid patients and mm. it's like um it's like when we were first discovering what HIV did, like you could not put those patients with any other place. And, right. you know, they were in the HIV wings and, you know, can't look at them you know, for fear that you'll catch it. Right. right. So um, this was based off of ignorancy and what we're doing um, kind of thing. And uh, we haven't learned. No, we haven't learned. <laughs> James, how is it like, have you noticed any um, 
or observed anyone that is that because they're more like acutely psychologically distressed like they're either psychotic um i mean i guess in really it would be psychotic in your case that because of paranoia um or any other psychological reason they've refused the test you know and how that like essentially has impacted their stay at the hospital yeah, well, it just if they refuse that test, then they have to stay on that admin unit for fourteen days. So where definitely, they're where they're where they're quarantined. Okay. Most most patients who initially refuse will eventually agree because they have that promise of going to a unit once they get a test that says they're not they don't have COVID. They have the promise of going to a unit where they can come out of their rooms, and that's enough usually that they'll go ahead and agree. But if some some patients will hold out and they just won't take the test and they'll be on the admin unit. Um, for the 14 days time. now what what really sucks now is when a normal unit which is not under quarantine if anybody in that unit says hey i've got a i've got a sore throat or you know or they cough so now all of a sudden they become a person uh, under investigation is what they call them that person is quarantined to their room and oftentimes the doctor will go ahead and make the call to quarantine the entire unit um, so you have people, again, who are completely asymptomatic, have no symptoms whatsoever. The entire unit gets quarantined because someone had a sore throat. And now everyone's quarantined in their unit. And then so it really sucks because these patients and the admit unit are being told, hey, if you take the test and you don't have COVID, you'll get to go to a unit where you can walk around, talk to other people and watch TV. Well, they get transferred from that admin unit and they get transferred to a, to a, a nor, what is normally a normal unit, but they're on, but they're on quarantine now. Wow. And then they've been told this whole time, like, just wait, just wait. And then they get to us and they're like, oh no, you still have to be in your room. Oh, right you know, and it's, it's like pulling the rug out from underneath their feet. Well, and I imagine like on the staffers, the unit staffers, that makes a huge difference because now you've got broken promises mm -hmm. with people that already have significant issues with trust and authority. Um, and they're, they're mad, like really mad yeah. that they, you know, they've been like, they finally thought there was maybe going to be some relief, at least some mm -hmm. interaction and they show up and right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. and just normal human functioning, such as a sneeze or a cough or a sniffer, mm -hmm. you know, now puts you under investigation. You're under investigation for simply being, you know, oh my God. Right. and that sounds so big brother-ish, you know, like it's now creepy. it's yeah, a little creepy. It's pretty creepy. Yeah. yeah. Person under investigation <laughs> is like. Achoo, 2319. What was that, the uh, Monsters, Monsters Inc. Inc. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like something out of one of my true crime podcasts, right? Like, person of interest, suspect, like, yeah. okay, yeah. so now we're investigating you. Yeah, we're going to be looking back this in about, you know, 50 to 100 years and go, this is what they were doing. You know? Right. And I thought we were, you know, that we evolved past this. In the 1800s, when somebody was an alcoholic, we used to lock them up in asylums and call them a weak-willed demon. And right. that was it, and bleed them dry like black snake moan or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Nowadays, we understand right. that you don't have to do this, and we can help you, right. you know, get over it and control your behavior. Um, but we went right back into primitive ways in this kind of category. Uh, you know, we're excelling in other categories, ICUs, hospitals, uh, medicines, vaccines, whatever. But then when it comes to the mobile response, behavior health, uh, where, where we're trying to mitigate uh, ailments and, and harm uh, done to oneself because of mental uh, issues, we are right back into one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And, and here's the here's the kicker, too. If you're on a quarantine, if you're on the admin unit or if you're on a unit that's under quarantine, 
you come out of your room, of course, we don't immediately, you know, tackle you. <laughs> but if you continue, if that, if a patient continues to refuse to go back to their room, even though all they're doing is refusing to go back to their room because of COVID concerns, they are now technically considered a danger to others. Right. And then, so oh. that can be used to justify, well, let's, we can call a code now, which is to have basically assistance from other units, like staff and other units come to assist and if they fight, if they continue to fight, then it could ultimately end up actually them going into restraints. Um, if, and it's so you basically have a situation now and this doesn't I, I will I'll, I'll say this does not happen often, but I have seen it happen. So now you have a situation where someone is in is in at least four point restraint, if not six point restraint. Because they got upset when people put their hands on them simply because they wouldn't return to their room. Right. And now, What's now the, they're... What are the five and six points? I get one through four. What are five and six? Uh, I, um, so usually it's either four or six. Uh, but if for, if for some reason we have the leg restraint on but not the chest restraint, that could be a five-point restraint. Mm. But usually it's either we either have the wrists and the, leg and the ankles, which is the four-point we either have that or we have that including a strap across like the thighs and a strap across the chest, which is a six point. Right. So when, when, um, when they're talking about restraints guys, they mean like, um, straps restraining the patient to the bed correct? so that they can't move correct right? yes. to hurt themselves or to hurt anyone else. Yeah. Right. At, le- at least that that's the idea is, is a dangerous self a danger to others. Right. And then unfortunately sometimes I, I think it happens and it really probably wasn't justified. Right. It, are these soft restraints or are these hard restraints? Because there is a difference. These uh, leather. They they're not leather with a key. Oh yes, then that that is that hard. Is That's that a hard? hard restraint. Yeah, they're hard restraints. So I I guess just technically it's not leather. It's a type of plastic, yeah, but it's, it's still a, with a key. We, yeah. we still, well, yeah. in the hospital we call them yeah you know, we call them leathers and yeah they get restrained and those are usually four points. Yeah. It's usually three. They're the ones in the hospital. Are usually three. They're soft restraints. They get checked every two hours. What is get, what is a soft restraint? It's literally, it's going on your wrist, usually, um, and it's a doctor's order. I don't just get to throw it in there willy-nilly, um, but it's like, a, it's like a padded fabric that has uh, a clip, like uh, you would put on a backpack. We tie them so that we can put two fingers in between the restraint and the patient, and then they are tied to the bed so that they can't move and for us it's usually because they're trying to remove some life-sustaining thing like an iv or or the the tube or you know something's going up their nose guys i'll put a tube anywhere Mm -hmm. um so Mm -hmm. that's usually what ours are for very rarely is it for true behavioral issues Mm -hmm. I'm cutting out that sound clip that you said, I'll put a tube anywhere, and we're just going to put that in there. <laughs> <laughs> that will be... I'm an ICU nurse. I will find a hole to put a tube in. This if not, Hillary. I will make This will be Hillary's <laughs> epitaph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Introducing Hillary. I'll put a tube anywhere. <laughs> James, so um, how do you feel like... Obviously, you began working on the inpatient psych unit. Yes, Toby. Um, after COVID was already oh, in full swing, right? Yeah. What? Do you, how do you think that what like watching the units quarantine or working with um, COVID positive patients has impacted the staff? Like you, you know, your team. It's. I mean, so I I don't I don't like it because, you know, as we've talked about, we're all Christians here. So I don't like it because I, I think of the image of God issues, the Imago Dei, 
and we have image of God people who are now locked up in a room. You have Imago Dei locked up in a room really just because they had the, you know, unfortunate, they, they were unfortunate enough to be on a unit where someone else got a sore throat or, or whatnot. And I, I mean, it's the same reason that I have a, a issue a lot with, with prisons. Mm-hmm. You know, we have, I think we have people that are filling our prisons, uh, image bearers of God for reasons that, that uh, under God's law, they absolutely should not be put behind, like be locked behind bars. Mm-hmm. So for me, I think about that a lot. Now I'll be honest though. They're, it's e- when they're on quarantine, it's easier. Mm. They're in their rooms. We don't really have to deal with them. Right. Sometimes it's like when we have, we have these patients that are, and not necessarily, not even necessarily when they're experiencing psychosis, but just, they could be borderline. You get a lot of the, the borderline patients, which are mentally exhausting mm-hmm. to deal with. Uh, or even even someone who's who's manic or someone who's depressed. They it can be mentally exhausting to to deal with these people. So there's an a, there's an aspect I think where a lot of staff, I mean, even a part of me when I'm honest, like that they're on quarantine and hey, it's kind of nice because they're in, they're locked away in their room and we and we don't have to deal with you now much except for when we come in to do your your vitals to take your vitals or to hand you your your dinner tray. But so I think for the most part, there's not really like an impact staff wide, but for I think for Christians who who have who have that consideration of these are, and I'm not saying that people who aren't Christians are just evil, you know, pitchfork carrying. I'm just saying Christians particularly consider. The fact that everyone, even these patients who are not in the best time of their life and who are oftentimes, you know, delusional, they are still image of God. And you got to be really careful when you're putting an image of God behind, behind it, forcibly behind a closed door. Right, right. Yeah, we weren't made for that. We, our psyches are not made for that. I wonder how much we're generating. You mentioned uh, manic episodes or uh, even to the slightest degree we can generate a cyclothymic uh, episodes, which is kind of a lower grade of bipolar uh, disorder as well, not as intense. And uh, I don't want to go into the DSM criteria, but you know what I mean. Well, I mean, yeah, cyclothymia is um, is a, it's it's not bipolar disorder. It's an yeah. entirely different disorder. But essentially, you're seeing um, a depression that's a little bit less severe than in a bipolar um, bipolar one or two, two yeah. and you're not seeing. Um, uh, you're not seeing the intense highs that you do in bipolar one with mania. So, right, right. um, it's like, it's a persistent kind of low level grade depression. Um, that's consistent, persistent. So, um, I believe, and I don't have my DSM in front of me, but I believe that it's like a minimum two year. Right. You need to have experienced this. The symptoms have been persistent for a couple of years. Yeah, they usually uh, put a time uh, a frame on that. So, I mean, clinically, we're not going to be allowed to diagnose these things, but we can speculate, and then we'll probably hit the nail on the head in a couple ones. And uh, and so that's just awful to see day in and, and day out, too, as well. Uh, your faith in Christ, if I can speak for you, has given you the strength. <laughs> Plus, I know your personality, too, as well. <laughs> you know, uh, You're pretty easygoing. Uh, God bless you with a cool uh, temperament, though I know that you can get mad. Um, and, uh, because everybody could get mad. Uh, but now with this hope in Christ, it makes sense to you. You know how to view human nature. You know 
what we should and shouldn't do. And this is the dividing line that we talked about. No, James White, I'm not stealing your uh, <laughs> your, your 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 line here, but uh, rather this... paying homage to one of our theological greats. Yes, yes. one of our great yes. Yes. mentors in the faith. Um, th- but this is a couch divided. And we understand that, that there is a divide between how you treat somebody in the secular world and how you treat somebody in the biblical world. We're both caring about safety. We don't want to spread the COVID, right? Of course. We're not going to get into conspiracy theories, and I'm talking about off-the-wall ones where you can't substantiate any kind of proof. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do recognize the political atmosphere. We do recognize both people who are in some kind of medical field going about it two different ways, which when, when you started mentioning the straps... Uh, Hillary, you know, boom, it clicked. We do that too. What are you using? How are you using this? What's a five point? You know, right. and she's taking care of people actually. Sometimes, where can I get one? For yeah. Yeah. where can I get one? For my yeah. fucking patient and four. Can we I know what one? Hillary is getting for Christmas. <laughs> a five point restraint. <laughs> and we we do see a kind of a dichotomy in how to handle this. Uh, the news makes it look like wear the mask. If you don't, you're the problem, right? You're maybe just one single person, but you can, you know, you're the person that's going to ruin it for everybody. Why do you want to kill yeah. grandma? Yeah, why do you, you want to kill grandma to for? Oh. And we have all of this now, in our, and we just heard from two people that are working in the world that go, even if you do or don't, <laughs> we have this problem, you know. Right. And, and, it exists yes. independently of that of the fatality factor, right? And so we, for, yes, <clears throat> right? And we so we forego now the humanity because we didn't start with God first. It says in the scriptures that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Right. So all of our empirical data is true, but all of our ethics behind the conclusions that we lead to from the empirical data, if it's not based in the word of God, reject it. Right. You um, have no foundation. Yes, we. I love data and statistics, right? Okay, we're counselors, we're psychologists. We view these statistics. We want to see how the brain works. But we have an ethical standard of how we interpret these things. Right. And it's from the overflow of a biblical worldview. If it transgresses against God, we need to find another way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and I was talking to, this just made me think of something I was talking to Robin about previously. And I think this is partly due to that, to that, to the cultural secular secularism okay. uh that that's just kind of that zeitgeist that's in, that's in the air these days and it's no longer christian now it's, it's very much secular the uh, the patients that come to us they are only treated medically they are only treated with medications yeah. so th- i and i think part of that is because there's this view that really that's all people are all people are, are these meat machines uh-huh. and so if there's a problem then it it must be only chemical. it must be chemical it must only be physical so they get they're only treated medications now this is different in the outpatient world but in the inpatient at least where i am there is there no they don't see a counselor they don't see a therapist they don't ever sit down with anybody to process um trauma to process any of these any anything it's simply oh this is this is your symptom this is the pill we're going to throw at it. And if that doesn't work, we'll throw another pill at it. And if that continues not to work, well, I guess we have to put you on a wait list now for the Arizona state hospital because none of these pills we've thrown at you have, have taken care of the problem enough that we feel like you can be released. Well, and you know, I have really strong opinions about that obviously as a therapist, um, that therapy shouldn't be foregone when it can be really helpful. Yes. Um, 
but yeah, I, I mean, it, 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 when you were talking to me about that the other day, it didn't surprise me at all. Now, at a place like the state hospital where, um, which is great, I did my pre-doctoral internship there. I can't say enough good things about Arizona State Hospital. Um, but everything is treatment focused. And psychiatry, of course, is a large component of stabilizing patients and therapy is a huge part of of continuing that recovery of recovering and then continuing that recovery and you've got a lot of um you have rehabilitation you know um you have social rehabilitation you have you know personal rehabilitation medication management you've got all of it life skills you know kind of life coaching because some you know some of the folks that end up there have missed some of that training um but uh it when you treat human beings in any other capacity than as image bearers you have cracks in the way that you approach care it's not holistic yeah, so right. um we're already a uh, sinful beings we're adding on top right uh, well and yeah. in a lot of cases we're really just exacerbating trauma like pre-existing trauma by you know not addressing it again when we've got the information that we really need to be able to do that and to do it effectively. So I'm speaking, you know, primarily as a trauma therapist. So um, even when Hillary was talking, my mind uh, Mm -hmm. thinking about the psychological consequences Mm -hmm. of family members who Mm -hmm. don't get to, they are become bereaved and they don't, they have, they didn't get to say goodbye to their person, you know? Um, And that's going to be a regret and stapled onto their mind. Oh my goodness. For the rest of their lives. Like that can impact relate, like, especially depending on who it is that's died, a spouse, a parent, a child, um, the psychological repercussions of that are kind of never ending and you don't get the benefit of closure and you're not guaranteed that in any death. Right. Um, But a lot of us do get that. Right. I I got one more thing to add and maybe, maybe we'll wrap it up. So I was having a conversation with a brother uh, from church who simply walked into a place to go get his haircut and a beard trim. Right. And uh, he was not wearing a mask. The owner uh, really doesn't care. You know, it gives you the option to self-govern how you want. And uh, maybe that's what we should do. (laughs) You know, you want to wear the mask? It's not going to help, but (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. wear it. Um, But uh, so he chose not to. Um, but, uh, and, uh, the, the clerk said, Hey, do you want a mask? And he goes, no. And he goes, and then they start getting a conversation about COVID and they're like, yeah, we don't know what to believe anymore. He was going to let him in there without a mask. It didn't matter. And they were actually having a decent conversation, but somebody in the chair that was getting a haircut overheard them and he had a mask on and he pulls down his mask and said, I had somebody that died from COVID. I know friends that have died from COVID. Mm-hmm. And what they're, what they're understanding about this is if you don't wear a mask, you now contributed to the death of people. Of and my that loved is one. now the belief system that is coursing through his brain, yeah. uh, mind. And now he's incorrigible in the mind and his in his reaction to people that when he sees them not toting the line of the political narrative that is... Well, we just heard from two people that could destroy uh, lives within misinformation. Um, uh, now you're yelling at somebody and getting a haircut and affiliating his mask with their death. Mm-hmm. Um, and now what does that do? You know, well, They wouldn't have died if you just complied right, kind of right. thing like that. And what does that do to your view of human nature? Well, and how like how bitter and resentful does that make you when you see anybody? And again, taking into consideration that you have no idea why that individual might not want to wear a mask, right? Mm-hmm. 
we, I mean, we talked about uh, Marcus Pittman and what happened to him up in Moscow, Idaho, when he, I mean, he has a heart condition. Mm. Um, So, you know, kind of, it perpetuates this unjust bitterness and resentment. He's got a beautiful aorta, though, I heard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I heard that, too. <laughs> so, um, a little tip of the hat, too. This, yeah, this has been totally awesome. You guys have been so great. Yeah, I apologize to our listeners. This has gone over uh, 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 an hour and 35 minutes, but the beauty about podcasts is you can press the pause button right. and come, come back. back to it anytime you want. They're not leaving, and if and if they did, you can always rewind. Right. And so... Um, we, you know, we love you guys. Yeah, love you. Um, we and we thank you for for all of you guys listening. Please like, subscribe to us, share it, and do whatever you can. Um, and remember that though suffering may come and trials and tribulations may come, and you'll have many, just take heart that He has overcome the world. Amen. Thank you guys. We're here.